the most important skill set we need to possess is curiosity. If we want to get creative, we have to get curious. If we want innovation, we have to get curious. If we want connection, we got to stop telling ourselves the stories we're telling ourselves and get curious about what's actually going on around us. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm J.R. Flatter, and this is Building a Coaching Culture. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. Our millennial voice. I'm the boomer voice. We'll let uh, Didi tell us where she comes from if she chooses to. But our distinguished guest today is Didi Halfhill. So let's just remind everybody who we're talking to. So building a coaching culture, leaders of complex organizations that are competing and succeeding in this 21st century labor market. It's not an urban legend that it's a hyper-competitive labor market. It's not a myth that people's expectations of their organizations is changing. And so for the way we have to lead them is changing. And for us, Lucas and I, we think very strongly that that 21st century style of leadership that will make us players of choice is a coaching culture and leading with a coaching style of leadership. So I'll be quiet there and let you, Didi, introduce yourself. And this is your opportunity. We really are genuinely want you to brag about yourself a little bit because there's a lot to brag about. That's always hard to do, right? But just to give your listeners a quick brief background, um, 25 years in the United States Air Force, spent most of my career as a communications advisor. We call it public affairs in the military. But then also had the opportunity to lead in my own right. I was a squadron commander in Iraq. I was a mission support group commander, basically, in some sometimes we call it like a small town mayor because you're responsible for everything that keeps a base operating, all of the stuff that takes care of people. So I was able to command at that level and had the privilege and opportunity to advise our most senior leaders in the United States military, everyone from the chief of staff of the Air Force to the secretary of defense to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So really had a career where I got to watch up close our most senior leaders and how they navigated the challenges we were faced with and had the opportunity to practice in my, you know, on my own and put some of those leadership lessons that I observed into practice and sometimes did well and sometimes stumbled. And so it was a career of both getting to apply, observe and learn. So, um, so grateful for 25 years of fabulousness. Oh, great. Thanks for your service and thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, we're trying to get a more uh, diversified group of folks in here so we can hear their voices and yours is certainly welcome. We're excited to have you. So Lucas and I usually go back and forth and so I'll start off. Uh, I see executive coach in your title. What does that mean to me? If I'm a, If I'm a leader of a complex organization, what does that mean to me? What does it mean to be an executive coach? Mm-hmm. And why do I, how do I know I need one? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Who among us doesn't, right? When I talk to folks about coaching, so I stumbled into coaching quite accidentally. I was doing a military program at Georgetown as part of our standard military education. 
And I was going through the course catalog and I saw this program called Executive Leadership Coaching. And I thought, oh, well, that might be fun. I had just come from a command opportunity in Iraq where, you know, I could say like, was it a successful command tour? I survived it, but I certainly didn't thrive in it. And the people under my leadership probably would say the same thing. Like there were some ups and downs and the downs were bad and the ups were, you know, okay. So I remember thinking like, wow, I really stumbled in my first big leadership opportunity and I'd love to learn more about why. And so I took this executive coaching program and I was fortunate enough to get into the program and and candidly, it was life-changing. It really did change everything about the way I looked at leadership. It changed everything about what I'm doing in my post-military life. It set me on a completely different trajectory. And really when it comes down to it, what coaching is, is First and foremost, it provides an opportunity for us to stop. And as leaders, we have so much on our plates and we are navigating so many challenges that often it's just a game of, you know, uh, pinball. Like I think often of leadership is like, I'm that ball in that pinball machine and I'm just getting shot in so many different directions that I very rarely get to pause. And so first and foremost, coaching, having someone there who just takes up time on your calendar is such an amazing gift because it forces me as a leader to pause, to look back on the things I've done, the decisions I've made, the direction I want to go and what has happened in the past that can fuel me in the future. Like where have I been and what does that mean to where I want to go? At the same time, uh, maybe it was a couple years earlier, I was getting my, I was finishing my graduate degree And the very last class of my entire program, so I was super excited. This is my last class. It was ethics and leadership. And I was contacted by the professor and she said, hey, listen, you're the only student. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if I changed the curriculum. And I was like, yeah, I mind. Because I knew what I already had on my plate. I knew what I was signing up for. I knew the workload I was signing up for. And she said, I was wondering if I could try an experiment with you and change the curriculum. And I can see your eyes getting really big. And that's exactly what I, you know, I did. I was like, what am I getting into? She was a chaplain in the United States Army. And she said, I want you to journal. I want you to spend the next semester just journaling. And between us, I hate journaling. And so she's like, I just want you to journal. And then we're going to talk about the reflections you're having. And I'm going to start with some prompts to get you going. But then over time, I want you just to journal about what's happening in your day. And because I was in class, I had to stop and do it. I often think coaching is the exact same thing. It forces us to stop and to reflect. So that's the first thing about coaching. The second thing is it's a thought partner. I don't have all the answers as a leader. I certainly don't have all the answers to the complex things that we are facing in our culture today, if that's politics and, you know, issues around gender and race. We've got, you know, COVID and and we all hear as we watch the news in this space of building great cultures and building great work workforces that how do we recruit, retain and grow the people we not want in our organizations. And often having a thought partner who can ask me questions that maybe I'm not asking myself who can offer me insight into other things that have been done and people have seen is so helpful. I remember when I was going through my coaching program and I was sitting across from 
a fellow student who was playing the coach and I was playing the client, right? I was the, the coachee. And I remember she was asking me questions and in my righteous, you know, self-talk, I was like, that's the best you got. Are you going to ask me anything? Like ask me anything profound? Like when are you going to ask me something I haven't asked myself a hundred times? And then she asked me this really simple question. And I was shocked because it brought me to tears. I realized she had asked me a question I had asked myself a thousand times, but never answered. And because someone was sitting across from me, I felt compelled to answer. And so an answer came to me that surprised me and opened and unlocked something about my leadership I was blind to because, candidly, it hurt a little to face it. So that's the second thing is, right? It's like the first thing is, is it, it allows us to slow down, gives us time. Second thing is it gives us a thought partner. Three, it gives us feedback. How are you doing? What have you done? What's working? What's not working? And then we get feedback on how are we showing up? What is the coach observing? Our blind spots. And then fourth and final, and it's probably like one of the most helpful aspects of coaching is as leaders, we can often get away with a lot. Like we don't always have that person right there holding us accountable constantly to the change we say we want to make. And a coach does that. A coach is that space of accountability. Like, I want to be the kind of leader who listens more. I want to be the kind of leader who takes a pause before I give my input. That's something I struggle with still to this day. So a little insight. And so a coach might say, how do you want to do that? What's it going to look like for you? And then when we meet up, he or she is going to ask me, how'd you do? What worked? What didn't work? What got in your way? And so it's the accountability I need to put into practice the practice I need to take so that I can evolve and I can develop and I can grow. So it's really those four things. It's space, it's a thought partner, it's feedback, and it's accountability. And I think all of us could use a little more of that in our leadership journey. Great. Thank you for that. It's kind of a long answer. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's awesome. I love hearing about that magic of coaching moment. Sometimes we ask our guests, like, oh, have you had a successful moment? And so thanks for just jumping in with that. We think about, you know, coaching on the one-on-one sense, but then looking at coaching culture, it's like almost like scaling that out to the organization, like um, when you're delegating things and having that be pervasive across the organization. Have you found that having that leadership style has kind of like trickle down to the rest of your organization? And, and how has that played out for you? You know, when I first got into coaching, a, a primary part of coaching and anyone who's in that space knows it's curiosity and questions that the foundation of great coaching is curiosity. And so I was meeting with a group of my mid-level officers, right? Kind of those line officers who are the young captains who are kind of responsible for the day-to-day operations of the organization. And we would meet once a month. And on this particular month, I wanted them to see what curiosity really looked like. Because I think if you were to ask most of us, most of us would say like, yeah, I'm pretty curious. I'm a curious person. And so I I thought I'm going to do a little exercise with them. I actually think I heard this on Tim Ferriss. It's probably where I first heard this exercise, but it was a life exercise. The exercise was like, ask yourself a hundred questions. And so I sat down with my mid-level officers and I said, I'm going to give you 20 minutes and I want you to write down a hundred questions 
about our United States Air Force. Now, remember, these are young officers. These are officers who've been in the military all of four, maybe even two years to, you know, five, six years range, right? Not that long. Young enough that they're still learning about the organization. Young enough that there's still so much about our operations, our strategy, and everything they have to learn. And so I said, I want you to write down 100 questions you have about our United States Air Force. And I'm going to give you 20 minutes to write down 100 questions. Go. And so they sat there. And for the first few minutes, you know, you could see them all writing down. And about five minutes in, you start to see people kind of like looking up, right, to think a little more, like get a little more creative. And then at the 10-minute point, you start to see people with their, their head in their hands, like, oh my God, what else can I come up with? You know, like the colonel, she's going to want to see these questions. And then about the 15 minute mark, you can see 99% of them were just like spent. Like, I don't even know what to come up with anymore. So I took them out of their misery and I said, all right, who, who had five questions? And, you know, most of the group raised their hand. And I said, who had 10 questions? Two thirds of the group was knocked out. Maybe a third of the group had 10 questions. And then I said, who had 15? Who had 20? By the time we get to 20, one person raised their hand. These are our youngest leaders, and they can't come up with 20 questions about our organization. And I had told them, ask anything you want. Ask, why do we wear green boots? Ask, why is the flight line security the way it is? Ask, you know, why, why, are, why do we paint the aircraft the way we paint the aircraft? Why is flight training the way it is? I mean, anything, any question you have about our United States Air Force. And only one person came up with 20. And you think about leading people, the most important skill set we need to possess is curiosity. If we want to get creative, we have to get curious. If we want innovation, we have to get curious. If we want connection, we got to stop telling ourselves the stories we're telling ourselves and get curious about what's actually going on around us. And they just were unpracticed in it. They weren't used to being curious. They were used to finding and knowing the answers. Like I come up with an answer. The sooner I get an answer, the sooner I'm out of pain and I can move on versus staying in that place of curiosity. So to answer your question about like, how did we grow that? It was just a constant discussion. Where do we need to get more curious? My team used to give me a hard time because they would come in and they would update me with a brief. And then they would say, I know the very first question you're going to ask me is, what else? So here's what else. And then they would tell me. And then I'd go, okay, what else? <laughs> you know, like, tell me more and what else are like your magic questions as a leader. And to create that culture, you just have to practice it and model it for them and really call it out. Call out, are we being curious? So most of our listeners are not going to be coaches. They're going to maybe have a coaching style of leadership within a coaching culture. How would you differentiate a coaching style of leadership? I think you have partially explained it already. But if I want to be a coaching style of leader, what do I need to change? Oh, God, that's a great question. There's so many things I would offer. But I think what's coming to mind for me the loudest is silence. I have to get really, really comfortable with silence. I have to get really comfortable as a leader. I mean, I know I fall into this and I still do to this day. Like I want to be a knower. I want to be the one with the answers. I love telling people how they can fix whatever challenge they're faced with. I love, love, love fixing things. And I have to get really comfortable. And it's something I challenge myself to regularly with 
just staying in curiosity and keeping my mouth shut. And so like, man, there is no greater gift than silence. And the crazy thing is, is when we can really lean into silence, when we can ask a question and let that awkward silence sit for just a little bit longer, magic starts to happen. And it actually makes leadership so much easier because like, I don't have to have all the answers. I'm literally just sitting in silence to allow another's creativity to start to flourish, to allow another's process of thinking through a challenge to really go through the steps they need to go through without just barraging them with my thoughts. I saw you sneak that Brene Brown quote in there, um, to be a knower. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I teach her work, right? <laughs> be a knower. Uh, yeah. Be, be a know. I'm a, I'm a knower and be a knower and getting it right versus being a learner. And no, I'm sorry. Being a knower and being right versus being a learner and getting it right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I love that. Yeah. So last time we had an interview, um, JR was joking. Oh, you're asking that question for yourself. So I have another one that's kind of, you know, kind of going on in my life. And I was curious if you had an answer where, so you're trying to encourage innovation, right? And have you encountered somebody that might be, you know, apprehensive to that? And and you're just trying to kind of like sing the praises of like these new ideas and creativity and they're maybe set in their ways. And what do you say to that person? Mm, I'd love to know more why that question is something you want to know more about. <laughs> I think you're getting coached, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, using Brene's work, there's so many little tidbits from her work that have changed, like I said, everything I think about leadership. But one of my favorite takeaways was the number one shame trigger at work, the number one thing that takes us out of our integrity, that makes us shut down, makes us think about like, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not, you know, creative enough. Anything that puts us in shame, the number one shame trigger at work is irrelevance. And when we think about change, to change something makes something else irrelevant. And I often think we're not teaching leaders the emotional skills that help manage the hurt and shame that come from when someone feels irrelevant. And it that feeling of irrelevance could be based on an entirely false story that they are telling themselves, but the feeling is no less real. The story may be false, but the feeling is real. And so until we can be leaders who can really acknowledge the feelings of shame that come from irrelevance, then all we're going to be doing is just blunt force to make change rather than really get into the Brene's work again, the fears and feelings of the people we're leading so that we can help them navigate that feeling of irrelevance to a place of purpose and value. If I could share a story real quick, I love stories, so I hope that's okay. But when I first became a coach, I was working with a client and we'll call him Tom. And Tom was in his late, I want to say probably late 60s. He was, by all accounts, a very successful. He was in the executive level, C-suite level. And his job was as the director of creativity and innovation. And no doubt, we hear about 
you know, that across every industry, right? Like every industry is looking to be more innovative and creative. And so he had volunteered to be one of my pro bono clients. So, you know, I wasn't, you know, this was just like, I was brand new at this. I didn't really know what I was doing as if any of us ever really know what we're doing. And so I sat down with him and I said, what do you want to work on? And he's like, I want to create a more innovative and creative team. And I was like, Oh, okay. You and everybody else. So that should be easy. And this is my first client. So we can, we can figure this out. Like (laughs) no problem. And so we're sitting there and we start talking about it and we're talking very logistics based. And I said, well, where do you want to meet every, every month? You know, this was a long time ago. So at the time coaching wasn't as virtual as it is today. And so I said, where do you want to meet? And he said, well, we can't meet in my office because if we meet in my office, we're going to get interrupted all the time. And I said, oh, tell me more. And he says, well, everyone comes to my door and they, you know, always come to my office with their questions. And I was like, oh, okay. And so we kind of were going through the logistics still. And I said, can I ask you a a question about what you said earlier? And he's like, yeah. And I said, I'm curious if you want to create a culture of creativity and innovation is answering their questions too quickly, taking them out of a space of discomfort and uncertainty that maybe they need to stay stay in to get more creative, right? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. He kind of he kind of dismissed the answer. And then we meet next week and he says, you know, I want to talk about that creativity thing again. Like, I get it. Like, I think maybe leaving them in a space of uncertainty is going to allow them to really think about some solutions they might not be thinking of. And if I give them the answer, I take them out of that space. So yeah, let's work on that. And I say, great. And so I said, how do you want to work on that? And he's like, okay, so from now on, when they come to the door, like, I just won't, you know, I won't answer their question. And I said, okay, and that sounds very simplistic. But that's kind of where he was at. So a couple of weeks go by and we're in our next meeting and someone comes to the door. He answers their question. I don't say anything. I don't, you know, I don't note or anything. Next week we're meeting again. Someone comes to the door. He answers their question. And finally I say, you know, I thought you had said you didn't want to answer their questions that when they came to you, can you tell me what's going on there for you? And he's like, I, you know, I, I just need to, you're right. I probably need to work on a little more. Fast forward, make a long story short. This continued to happen. So finally, one day I'm frustrated because I'm a new coach and I've got a story in my head that says, I'm not helping this guy change fast enough, you know, (laughs) which is not a great thought to have as a coach, nor is it my place to even think about that. But, you know, he keeps answering their questions and I'm frustrated. He's frustrated. And I start to nudge him a little. It's that feedback thing I talked about. And I said, you committed to not answering their questions and you are still answering their questions. You have committed multiple times to not answering their questions, and you are still answering their questions. What's going on here for you? And he looks at me, and he slams his hands down on the table, and he says, if I don't answer their questions, then what the, and he swears, am I here for, right? What the am I here for? And I had this moment where it was like, and that's it. His value was coming from being the person who answered their questions rather than being the person who created safe space for them to stay in uncertainty, rather than being the person who created safe space for them to make mistakes and try again. His value was coming from being the person who had the answers. Because he didn't shift the story about where his value was coming from, he was feeling irrelevant if he couldn't do the thing that he thought brought him value. Rather than reframing and finding value somewhere else and being relevant in that space, he was fighting being irrelevant in a space he didn't need to be. 
I think that gives me a lot to think about. Thank you so much. <laughs> you led yourself right into my next question. If I could ask you to finish that story, because I wanted you to share one of your success stories, and I bet this turns out well. You know, to be honest, I think it turned out well in the sense that we did have a great conversation about value. And I think he did start to see like, oh, I can create that value for them, right? I don't like to brag, but he did end up writing me a note. And to be be honest, I never got curious enough to learn more, but he did end up writing me a note afterwards and saying, I just wanted you to know, like, I had really low expectations for this experience. I had had coaches before. It didn't work well. You know, he was very much a, he had a lot of bravado. He was very much a strong ego, got a lot of value from, like I said, being the guy with the answers, was not a feeling-based person. At one point I had said to him, I'd love for you to list like the feelings in the culture you want to, you want to create in the organization. And he, the next week when we met, he brought me in like a flow chart of the feelings <laughs> people should be having. Like everything was very <laughs> flow chart engineering based. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> and he said, I want you to know you changed my life. Like you changed my life because I have never given that much consideration to my own space, let alone the emotional space of another. So. I would say like that felt really good. It felt good to be a person who could support someone on that journey. Yeah, that's the greatest part about this, being a coach. That made me think about, you know, there's this metaphor where like, what business are you actually in? So McDonald's, like you think they're in the food business, but when in reality they're in the real estate business because that's what drives their profits and everything. So if somebody has like a mistaken value, like, oh, I hired you and I think your value should be this, but they're actually attributing it to something else. Can you kind of like change people's belief of what their value should be? Or do you have any techniques that kind of help that? I don't think we can ever change people. So I think right up front, I would say like, I can't change your values. But what came to mind for me when you asked that question is so often we're going through life without, and I'm going to say this and I'm probably going to get some haters in the beginning, but stick with me. We go through life not really knowing what we value. And so, you know, as coaches, I'm sure you've done a ton of values exercise. One of my favorite exercises out there is VIA, Values in Action, so viainstitute.org. It's a free values assessment. And I love using that assessment because so often when we are given an opportunity in a leadership development program or in a coaching program, and we're asked to list our values, and maybe we're given a list of values to pick from, right? I know in the Dare to Lead work, in the workbook itself is a list of values, and we ask people to circle their values. The problem with that approach is we often circle values that are aspirational, are values we think we want to live by, values we think others would admire in us, What I love about the VIA assessment is that it asks me a series of behavioral questions. And based on my behavior, it does not ask me about values. It says, based on my behavior, these are the things that I value. And when I saw those values, like when I would circle a list, I would say, like, I value family and I value, you know, love, which on my VIA assessment came out at the very bottom, which was funny to me in some ways because kindness, love, and humility were my bottom three. But my top two were growth and authenticity. 
And when I saw that, it was life-changing for me because then with my coach, I sat down and I was like, where does authenticity show up for me? Oh, it shows up here, here, and here. And here's what we know about values. When we are living in our values, when we are doing work that is aligned with our real values, the things we really value, that we morally hold as important, when we are in alignment with that, we feel energized, we feel flow, we feel excitement, we feel connection. And when we are doing work or we are in a space where we are misaligned with those values, we're exhausted, we're depleted, we're frustrated, we're angry. The problem is we often think we're living by our aspirational values when what we really hold dear is being drugged down, right? It's being trampled upon and we're frustrated and don't know why. So it's not that I think we can change people's values. It's that how do we have a space and place where we can really get clarity on what we value so that we can orchestrate our lives to be able to do work that is in alignment with them. Now, if I could just add one thing to that, because I often get the question in the Air Force as an example. The Air Force's core values were service, integrity, and excellence. My core values were growth and authenticity. And some might ask, well, unless you have the same values as your organization, does that mean you're misaligned? And I say, no, not at all. What it means is that within that culture that holds those values dear, do I think those are great values? Yeah, they're great values. Within that organization, I need to find work that allows me to live within my values that is supporting that organization's values. What that looked like for me was being a commander who could really help my younger officers grow and develop. Growth and authenticity, my top two. I wanted to talk about how do we clear the stuff that's in our way as leaders that's sabotaging us. And I wanted to be able to show up as my authentic self. I didn't want to be the officer that person told me I should be. I wanted to be the officer who was showing up with my authentic gifts and talents. And I wanted those gifts and talents to be appreciated and valued. That's authenticity for me. So we, we try to project in our developmental education engagements, visionary futures so laying things in plan, in place and then taking purposeful action to make those things happen. If you could go back to fi yourself five years ago, what would you tell yourself about the five years ahead? What would you do differently? Well, you picked a really interesting five years because, <laughs> you know, I retired from the Air Force in April of 21 was my official retirement date. And I started my terminal leave in December of 20. So it has been a roller coaster of a journey as you leave one organization that really, by all accounts, is where I grew up. I mean, I joined the military at 22. It is the foundation of everything I am today as a leader. All of the good and bad experiences that have shaped me as an adult human being, or, you know, so many of them are a part of that Air Force journey. And I had so much identity tied up into Colonel Halfhill. And so much identity in being a military leader and so much identity in being a part of a team and an organization that had purpose and value. And then you walk away from it. And when you walk away, you walk away. And suddenly I was faced with who is Didi and where am I making a contribution and how do I 
continue to give back? And how do I continue to grow when I'm literally working at home on my couch every day? You know, like where am I being stretched and where am I being challenged? And so for me, the past couple years have really been an exploration of that identity. How do we redefine who we are? How do we let go of one identity so that we can lean into the next? And so I would tell my five-year-old, you know, my five years ago self, I would tell her, get ready for a roller coaster and just know that your identity is so much deeper than some of these labels we've been given and some of these labels that we wear, that my real identity is about my values and my strengths. And I get to apply those regardless of the organization. But Colonel Halfill is not the only thing I have or ever will be. There are so many other ways that I can give back to the world in a way that is meaningful for me. So a lot of identity work, like get ready. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for sharing that. I guess a follow-up to that, I mean, identity is in the vernacular a lot these days. Everyone's, you know, talking about identifies this, that. And so do you think that there's a way to kind of like more deliberately like assess and like reflect, oh, this is my actual identity? And how does that look to you? That's a great question. You guys asked some good questions. Uh, it's a coaching background. Um <laughs> You know, I think it really is. It's the work we all as coaches help people go through. And that is that deep self-reflection, knowing your values, knowing your strengths, knowing the things that sabotage you. Because so often, you know, I love Brene's use of armor, right? Knowing where we are armoring up and why. And what armor do we wear? You know, being a knower and being right is certainly an armor I wear. Like it protects me. It protects others from seeing what I might not know if I just always come in with an air of, I have the answers. And so shaping our identity is the work of doing the self-work and really looking at how do all of those things come together to shape who I am and how I want to contribute. Where do my strengths play in? And am I leaning into my strengths? Where are my values fueling me? And am I allowing myself to be fueled? And, you know, where is my trauma and the stories I'm trying to hide and the hurts I've experienced? Where is my trauma getting in the way of those two things? So I often think about like, who am I? Brene says, I'm using a lot of Brene. She's on the brain today. I did a presentation earlier this morning, but Brene says who you are is how you lead. And nothing has felt more true for me because who I am is my values, my strengths, and all of the bad things that have, bad and good really, just experiences that have happened to me that have shaped the way I look at the world, shaped the way I engage with the world, shaped the way I protect myself from the world. And so that is my identity. That's who I am. We help people build houses of leadership. That's one of our things. And one of the characteristics of this house of leadership is lifelong learning and development. And I suspect you're on a similar journey. If I want to be you when I grow up, what should I be reading? What kind of certifications do I need or degrees? To be a coach? To be a successful leader with a coaching style of leadership, to be a coach. I get asked a lot like what my favorite books are. 
And I can just tell you the books that had the most profound impact on me. The first one is not a book at all. And it's actually how I got involved in Brene's work. But despite, I think she's got like six New York Times bestsellers right now. I'm actually featured in one of the books and it's still not my favorite book. Like my favorite body of work from her is a six-hour audio recording of a workshop she did, and it's called Power of Vulnerability. And it's available on Amazon. It's a recording of a workshop. And even with all the books, and her books are amazing, that audio recording is still today by far my favorite. Because if I want to be great, if I want to be the kind of leader who can create a coaching culture, I have to do a lot of my own work which means I have to understand where I'm feeling vulnerable. I have to understand that vulnerability isn't a bad word. And I really have to, and this is the one we don't, we're not ready to talk about yet because I go into organizations all the time and they look at me like, oh, we can't go there. We really got to understand what's driving our own shame. We really got to know what are the stories that are coming up that is driving our shame. And that audio program is probably the best I've heard in providing it in a concise package that is fun to listen to because her energy. That one changed my life. That's the audio program that really got me into the space of coaching, that got me into the space of exploration and curiosity. And then I love really good tactical books. So the book, uh, A Coaching Habit, right, gives you some really great, and I'm going to butcher his name. So it's Michael. Michael Bungay-Stanier. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I get it wrong all the time. No, no worries. I love that book. Some really simple questions, right? Five questions that I can just tell me more. What else? Great one. Love difficult conversations because it gives me some really practical ways to start hard conversations. Love the book. Thanks for the feedback because it gives me a very practical way to ask a very simple question. What's one thing I could do better? So I love the deep theory power of vulnerability, which really helps me look at me. And I love things that are really practical in nature. Like, give me just a quick tool I can start applying. So thinking about, you know, how uh, coaching has affected your leadership and your professional life, could we look at your personal life briefly? And how have you seen, you know, your professional development benefiting you in your personal life? It's funny. I, you know, I spent 25 years in the military and I was never married, no kids. And when I decided to retire, like a month later, I went on a Bumble date. I'm not not sure if you're aware of the dating app Bumble, but I went on a Bumble date and uh, met someone and we've been together ever since. And it's funny because I had gone through all of the coaching work prior to that and was already teaching Dare to Lead, uh, Brene's, you know, program on courageous leadership. And we connected because he was a big fan of Renee and was already kind of in that space of doing his own work and exploration. But we use the curiosity and sentence starters all the time. Like on a daily basis, one of us will be saying something that could trigger the other and we'll say, tell me more. What else? And we use one of Renee's uh, sentence starters called the story I'm making up right? The story I'm telling myself, which as coaches, you know, like 90% of the challenges we're facing with the leaders we have to support is what story have they made up about what's going on in front of them? And so on a regular basis, he and I will be talking and, and I'll say, you know, you you put the cup on the counter and the story I'm making up is that you think it's my job to put the dishes in the dishwasher. And, you know, and he'll say, oh, no, I put the cup on the counter because I was going to use it later, right? But I could have very easily made up a story in my head like, oh, He thinks it's my job to put the dishes in the dishwasher and I'm not going to be the maid around here, you know, like (laughs) 
you know, you all know if you're in relationships, these stories. And so for us, it's just been such a gift because we have little to no conflict because we're very honest about the stories we're making up. And we're very good at just saying, tell me more. So it's been a game changer. It's probably why we're actually working. (laughs) Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.